Uh, Maria, welcome to First Up, it's Rapa, that's Wednesday the 8th of June. Kornathan Rarere, aho. Coming up, Australia's new Prime Minister prepares to welcome his first foreign leader to Australia. Someone called Jacinda Ardern. Uh, Boris Johnson may have won a vote of confidence amongst his own MPs, but has he lost his grip on power? Henry Riley is standing by in London to talk to us about that. We're here from an Auckland supermarket owner finding himself cleaning toilets and working tills just to stay afloat. And I caught up with Sir Graham Henry about the difficulties All Blacks face once they've hung up their boots. They're not going through the same training programme as they did as professional rugby players, but they still eat the same amount of food, so you've got to make some changes in their life. Welcome to First Up. I'm Nathan Rarere. We begin this morning in Australia where the new Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has got the dustbuster out. He's just making things look nice because he's due to meet his first foreign leader on Australian soil soon. Our Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern. Uh, high on the list of topics of conversation will be the issue of 501 deportees. And when we get the news from Australia, we'd like to go to Brisbane where our friend Pam Corkery awaits us. Morena Pam, how are you? I've been sitting here for hours. Yes, he will have the dustbuster out and be mm. making savouries, just going crazy. Oh, he will <laughs> pop them in the oven, that's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, Jacinda Ardern arrives tomorrow to meet with Albanese, and it starts with a private dinner. Um, oh. And I would say, yeah, just the two of them. Where do they go? You know, I don't know how that works. Or do oh, they we're have somewhere it? in uh, Fortitude Valley, will it? Is that right? Yeah, no, somewhere down here, I've thought it's your valley, and, um, you know, if you can get your way through the homeless and the um, people who, you know, sell their bodies, um, then I think they'd be fine. They could work that out in that atmosphere. In your food yeah. Probably at his place in, in Canberra. Now, I figure <laughs> they will get to this straight away, first course. Mm. They will be onto this. I mean, Albanese and Jacinda are really, you know, obviously on good terms and they've talked to each other over many years. And we have had this policy of deporting New Zealand citizens, even if they've lived their, almost their entire life in Australia, back to New Zealand. Now, that was under the old days of Scott Morrison and Peter Dutton. And I think there's been an indication that what will be taken into account is how long people lived and how long Kiwis lived in Australia before they were deported. I mean, if they came here when they were six months old, then it is indeed, as Jacinda Ardern says a couple of years back, this is, you know, Australia's problem, not Mm. New Zealand's. I don't think there'll be much more than that. I mean... I think it's quite popular among Australians, deporting New Zealanders, if only as a joke. You know, they bring it up when often when they meet you and they go, oh, when are you being deported? And you laugh. Yeah, honestly, you just laugh and laugh and laugh because you've heard it a hundred times before. Yeah. But um, I, I think taking into account how long people have lived in Australia, New Zealand-born lived in Australia, is very fair. And I think that's at least... a one thing that will be conceded immediately. Mm. Well, I think the only people who've really been super happy about the 501 deportations to New Zealand are people selling loud motorbikes in New Zealand because that seems to be the only thing that's... That they've really been buying it when they get here. But I see in Australia, they're, but they're warning... so flashy. Oh, yeah, you they know, are. Yes. They stick out like the dog's proverbials. <laughs> yes, I mean, they they, they're not, they're not um, culturally connected 
the way New Zealand gangs are. They haven't got an ethos or a, a, a joint scheme. They're just money, 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 give it to me. Yeah. yeah. Also, though, this is one, um, they always seem to get a much better rap because, oh, look at them, they're wearing suits. Let's write movies about them and make them the stars. The actual mafia in Australia, what's happening there? Look, unreal. And I think this will have shocked people. It came out late yesterday. The Australian Federal Police have made this announcement that there are thousands of members of the Italian mafia in Australia and they are behind bikey gang crime. I mean, we all know there's connections and various ethnic groups um, have got a criminal faction, but this is really large. They, the Australian Federal Police are investigating 51 Italian organised crime clans, the majority of whom, or the biggest um, bunch of them, are the Indrangheta. Now, they are the They've got 5,000 members in Australia and they are the biggest criminal organised crime group in the world. Wow. I know. They're very good at... They control the majority of the world's cocaine and they are very sophisticated at money laundering. So it's it's a big shift, really, because it's all the gangs, the gangs, the gangs. But if you... If you look at it closely, there's always someone, as you said, in a suit behind mm. the scenes. So it's they've been the the bike gangs too have been working with the well through the Andringata. I'm still trying to get my head around <laughs> it um, with Middle Eastern gangs, Asian triads, South American cartels, just tons and tons of drags into the country. Yeah, yeah. There's always the uh, the ones with the business sense at the back of it. Going, yeah, you, you, you guys go out there and do. It. You go that. You do that. I'll be back here. I'll do that. Yeah, Pam, yes. Pam, thank you very much for your time. Uh, thank you. My don't, pleasure. Don't always. get deported in the next week, please, because it's Look, so I'm good. Look, I'm trying. I'm trying. Okay, then I'll behave. Okay, cheers. Thank you. This year's in Brisbane, our correspondent Pam Corkery. It is eleven minutes past five. You're listening to First Up here on RNZ National with me, Nathan Radere. Go to Ukraine now, where President Zelensky says that his fighters in the east of the country are vastly outnumbered by Russian forces. Says the cities of the east are now dead after constant bombardment from Russian artillery. The BBC's Joe Inwood has this report. Yelena has been left with her life but little else. Don't walk there, the roof could fall, her rescuer says. The 81-year-old's house was hit in a suspected Russian missile artillery strike. You see yourself what happened. What else can I say? I have been left homeless in my old age. She lives in the village of Druzhkivka, just under 50 miles from the cities of Lysyshansk and Severodonetsk the current focus of Russia's forces. And this is what could await her town if the Russian invasion continues. Under almost constant bombardment, President Zelensky says they have been left as dead cities. When you drive across Lysychansk, there is a feeling that there is no one there. There are no people on the streets except for our military. And this is what people have fled. Footage released by the Russians shows their artillery in action. They are pounding this region and its Ukrainian defenders, who the British Ministry of Defence say they are trying to cut off. But it is not just on the front lines that the consequences of this war are being felt. There is a global food crisis being caused by the blockade of Ukraine's ports. 
Without impunity. At a tense session of the United Nations, the EU representative held nothing back. Let's be honest. The Kremlin is using food supplies as a stealth missile against developing countries. The dramatic consequences of Russia's war are spilling over across the globe, and this is driving up food prices, pushing people into poverty, and destabilizing entire regions. And Russia is solely responsible for this food crisis. Now that's something they deny. Indeed, the Kremlin says it is the West that is causing the food crisis because their continued support for Ukraine is prolonging this conflict. But for people in places like Drushkivka, this is a war for their very survival, a conflict that is now being felt around the world. That was Joe Inwood reporting from Kiev. Tell you now, it's 13 and a half past five. You're listening to First Up on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarida. Any thoughts in your head, send them on in 2101 or you can email us first up at rnz.co.nz. But in the Middle East, there is growing anger over comments made by a couple of right-wing politicians in India. Joining us from Doha is our correspondent, Alex Baird. Morena, Alex. Kia Nathan. So who are the politicians and more importantly, what did they say? Yeah, so this, this all started off with a senior spokeswoman for the BJP party, which is the Hindu nationalist ruling party in India. And it's actually quite hard to work out exactly what she said, because it hasn't been publicised that much. It's been more publicised about the backlash. She was basically on a televised debate, and the idea is that she made some disparaging uh, remarks about the Prophet Muhammad um, regards the age of women that he married. Um, and after that, a number of countries throughout this part of the world have come out and said, hey, this was a step too far. Um, Qatar, where I am, the foreign minister here called the ambassador for India before them. Um, a number of countries, UAE, Qatar, Kuwait, Jordan, Oman, Saudi Arabia, the list goes on, have condemned the BJP leaders' remarks. And this is quite interesting because... There's a very large Muslim population in India and the Hindu nationalist government and regional governments have been doing a number of things which have been affecting their rights, for instance, banning headscarves at particular educational institutes for women and things like that. And this has now been seen as a bit of a catalyst for outrage against everything. You've seen in some countries in this part of the, of, of the region in the Arab Gulf pulling Indian um, products of supermarket shelves. And it's interesting because there's been a backpedaling that this woman who made these comments has been fired. Another um, senior figure within the party has also been fired for echoing those comments, which is quite unusual to see coming from the BJP party, some actual backpedaling. Um, so it'll really be interesting to see here what the backlash is because India had been cozying up to several countries in the region and is now doing a bit of political damage control. Um, they didn't really care when it was Muslims at home, but now that it's affecting Muslims outside the country, now suddenly the BJP cares. Yeah, I was, I was just thinking, if you just want to make your trade difficult around that area, that's the way to do it. It really is. It was yeah. very... It was when it comes just, to money. Yeah, very accurately done there by, by that MP. Okay. Um, in Tunisia, there's a, a week-long strike going on by judges. Why is that? Yeah, so, so the president of Tunisia has not been in anyone's good books really recently. So he went around and he fired 57 of the country's judges in one sitting. And the, the rest of the judges in Tunisia have come out and said, hey, you can't do this. You are completely influencing the judiciary. Now, this isn't the first time the president of Tunisia have, has been in hot water. 
Uh, last year, he went and he dissolved parliament. He seized executive power. Um, and for those moves, he's, there's been a huge backlash, especially from Western countries. Um, the sad part of this is, is that Tunisia was really the only country that emerged out of the Arab Spring in the 2010s, with a f emerged from that with a new democratic functioning government. And it now seems to be that that is all slowly slipping away. Uh, I saw an interesting story here about Turkey um, having a new name, at least at the United Nations. What, what do we go with with this? Uh, so, yeah. So at home, Turkey is known as Turkiye. And now Turkey has decided that it doesn't want to be known as the anglicized version anymore. So it's gone to the United Nations and it said, hey, we want to be officially recognized. You know, you see everyone at the United Nations General Assembly with their little placard. Hmm. We want on that placard to have Turkiye. Um, it's part of a bit of a, a rebrand. They came out earlier in the year and, and late last year with, with new branding for their, for their um, for immigration and things like that using Turkiye. But now they want it to be used in a diplomatic setting as well. Uh, one of the reasons why they wanted to do this, this has been said, is that they were sick of being compared to a turkey, the bird. They were right. over it. And this was the next step, was to officially change the name. And also, apparently, and I didn't know this in the States, when you call someone a turkey, it's a disparaging remark as well. So they were, um, turkey was over it. That they, they didn't want to have any more of this association with the bird, the turkey. And so they've officially changed their name to Turkey. Turkey. There we go. It's hard to say it without doing the Italian hand, which isn't right at all. I mean, I'm totally wrong. <laughs> I was doing it as world. I was talking as well. But it helps it come out right, Turkey. Okay. Well, there, there we go. Hey, Alex, thank you. Um, thank you very much for your time joining us there on the streets of Doha. Was Alex Beard? Yeah, Turkey, Turkey. And I think that too. Fair enough. It's like no, that's our name. That's what our name is. You just, it's, it, it, you can pronounce it. What about us? It's our place. Claiming it back, Turkey. Good for them. Nineteen minutes past five. I'm Nathan Rarity with First Up here on RNZ National. So coming up, an Auckland supermarket owner finding himself cleaning toilets and working tills just to stay afloat, and also Henry Riley in the UK after Boris Johnson narrowly escaped that vote of no confidence yesterday. Trade Me's Kindness Store is back for winter this year. Funds raised will go towards those in need through a number of charities, including Rainbow Youth and Women's Refuge. Also up for grabs on the site this week are plenty of knickknacks commemorating Her Majesty's 70 years on the throne and a round of golf with All Black Tyrell Lomax. But first, producer Jeremy Parkinson talked with Millie Sylvester from Trade Me about 2022's Winter Kindness Store. Our kindness store is back for winter and this time we've teamed up with three different charity partners, so Rainbow Youth, Kids Can and Women's Refuge and we've stocked our virtual shelves with all of the things that Kiwis need that really will make a big difference this winter. We know that the rising cost of living is, is hitting a, a lot of families really hard so the kindness store is filled with all sorts of things that you can buy to help. So things like two weeks worth of breakfasts for kids can or a safe night for women's refuge. It's just such a cool way of, of giving back and a really easy way of giving back too. Yeah, and proves popular every every time you do it. 
Absolutely. So, so far since 2018, we've actually raised $350,000. So um, it would be awesome if we could see that number climb up again this winter to, to really help out some Kiwis in need. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great initiative from Trade Me there. Two uh, properties this week, a boho beach house in Kaikoura. Uh Tell us about this. This is a beautiful house. Yeah, this is, and, and what a beautiful part of the country, you know, this, I'm not sure if it's a house or a batch, I think, you know, that would potentially be up to, to the owner to decide, but it has been made from native timber to really celebrate those wonderful natural surroundings, and from the outside, it has this rustic look to it to complement that that amazing kind of rugged coastline that surrounds it. Um, so it's at Macro Point for those who do know Kaikoura very well. And it's a three-bedroom, two-bathroom uh, house or batch, and it's sort of set on 2.5 acres. So there's a whole lot of opportunity around it, but the house is, is pretty cool. It's got a cellar downstairs that could be well, an area that could be a wine cellar or maybe a rumpus room for the kids to hang out in on those cooler nights. A log burner and some beautiful big windows to watch that ocean come crashing down in a storm, which can be pretty spectacular in the winter time wrapping around it is a 200 meter square deck to enjoy the sun so this place would be pretty amazing in both summer and winter i think and as the seller you'd probably want to have the open home when the whales are passing the window absolutely it's such a spectacular part of coastline and you know i know from experience that you know there's there's killer whales that come up there at the start of every year and sort of show their young the coast so there would be some spectacular wildlife that you would see from that place for sure now all blacks rate themselves quite highly on their golf skills uh, tyrell lomax is no different now he's uh, he's putting himself up on the golf course for a charity he is. So Hurricanes fans, well, and All Blacks fans will be really keen to check out this auction to play a round of golf with the rugby legend. It's part of the Salvation Army Red Shield appeal. So um, this has been a series of auctions that we've seen, and this is one of the last ones. What a great birthday present or gift for a rugby fan in your life who's actually just really, really hard to buy for. So the golf session will take place in Wellington on a great on a date agreed upon, and the winner gets to take along two guests as well so all the gear and refreshments are included along with any travel costs and honestly the bidding's just hit $110 so this at the moment is a real bargain in my opinion you've got until um, Thursday at 10am to bid on this so this is a really cool experience and for what I think is a, a great price and a really good cause. Now Platinum Jubilee time this past weekend what have trade me got in the way of Queen stuff? Yeah, well, the Platinum Jubilee has some of our members looking through cupboards and drawers and selling off some items to commemorate Queen Elizabeth II and her 70 years of service. Now, I didn't even know there was a 70th Jubilee Barbie doll made of the Queen, but there was, and that's up on site for sale, brand new in its box. There's a collection of New Zealand stamps of the Queen and Prince Philip, which look like they were made not long after her coronation because she looks very, very young and on the stamps. There's even a commemorative silver coin and if you're still planning on throwing a jubilee party, there's napkins and bunting on site galore. So lots of Kiwis getting involved in buying and selling stuff to commemorate the Platinum Jubilee on site. Yeah, it's Trade Me's Millie Sylvester. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. We do this every day. 
Today, by the way, is the day of our life, the 8th of June. Katrina uh, just commented to me there in my ears, this is a big, big day. This might be one of the champion days of the year. We have some days you're scratching around for things. Other days, great things. Let's have a go. The 8th of June was a strong day in the invention space. It was happy birthday to Francis Crick, who, British biochemist, won the 62 Nobel Prize for discovering, oh, you know, just the structure of DNA and also contributing to radar. That's pretty good. But I think... Really, one of the names uh, of, I mean, we hear too much about Elon Musk. Get inventing, Elon. Let's build these things you say you're going to. What about this guy, Tim Berners-Lee, Sir Timothy Berners-Lee now. He is 67 years old today. When he was 34 years old, he comes out of his office at CERN and goes, um, yeah, I'm going to call that thing the World Wide Web, so it might be useful for sending information and stuff. Yeah, I'm back to work now, bye. And he went back into his office, and there he did. There's a small plaque over the office there from it. But yeah, 1989, the World Wide Web. That's pretty cool. So, Sir Timothy Berners-Lee, uh, happy birthday to you. Bonnie Tyler. This one amazed me more the, the more I found out about her. Bonnie Tyler is 71 years old today. Happy birthday. Was born Gaynor Hopkins. Did not know that. Welsh singer. I did not know that. And in 1976, she actually underwent surgery to remove nodules on her vocal cords, and that's why she has that beautiful husky voice that she came out with. Tennis player Kim Clijsters is 39 years old today. Kanye West is 45. William Skaggs, you know him better than better as Boz. Boz Skaggs is 78. Uh, he was nicknamed Bosley by one of his classmates. I don't know why. Uh, in 1948, George Orwell's 1984 was published. And in 1984, the movie Ghostbusters came out. It was pretty huge. And then on this day, 1985, The Goonies. There you are. What a day, 8th of June. You've crammed a lot into your life, haven't you? Joining us now from our business team is Mr. Giles Beckford. Kia ora, Giles. Kia ora to you, Nathan. I was just listening to you about Sir Timothy Berners-Lee and you say, wonderful man, popped uh. out during tea time. Oh, look, I've just invented this. Yes, yeah, called <laughs> that. And, but, I mean... Was it such a great invention after all? <laughs> yeah. I've, I've I mean, seen some wonderful should, interviews with him about think. it. Yeah. <laughs> we, we should just we should just take a moment to reflect that not everything has been so wonderful all the time. No, it hasn't. No, no, that is true. Mind you, I wouldn't have found out about him if he hadn't come up with it. It's one of those <laughs> one of those weird things how the brain thought of its own name, which is yeah. one of those great little shower yeah. thoughts to have. What is ESG? ESG. And, and, we, and why do those three little letters, why can they get you locked up overseas? Well, uh, we've spoken about it before, and clearly your short-term memory is starting to fade, Nathan. Yeah. Uh, but it's environmental, 90. social... And governments. Oh yes, right. The, the the three little letters that companies like to bandy around. Uh, a little bit like uh, <laughs> when I was coming into work, I was listening to the BBC thing about the royal warrant for various food companies, and uh, and this is ESG is a sort of a financial royal warrant. You know, you uh, it's it's a marketing thing. Mm. It shows responsibility. Um, it means that you're putting your money into the right places, that uh, you're looking for sustainable industries and investments. Uh, they do no harm, or at least they try to minimize the harm that there is, um, and they're ethical. So, you know, all well and good. You know, we've got uh, investment companies here, KiwiSaver companies, will throw ESG at you all day like it was monosodium glutamate. Mm. But... In Germany, it turns out that one of the biggest banks around, Deutsche Bank, and they don't get much bigger in the in the world than that, 
um, one of their managers has just been arrested for uh, greenwashing. He was misleading people about how green the investments were. Police knocked on the door and said, uh, excuse us, we'd, we'd like to have a little chat to you about some of your advertising and uh, the ethical way that you are actually investing your money. So if you're in Germany and you're bandy around the ESG label and you don't live up to it, the police will knock on your door and they possibly drag you off to pokey. Uh, <laughs> and, I have to, and I have to say, there are a few investment managers down this part of the world who in the past could have done with a little time and pokey just to, um, should we say, clarify their thinking about the way they invested their money or, shall I say, invested our money. But uh, there it is. Um, we've mentioned it before. You've actually got to be quite alert to the greenwashing scams that can sometimes go around. It's easily put on an investment. Not always uh, true. Um, if you want ethical investing, then you and you insist upon it from your fund manager. It's I think it's up to you to make sure that um, you keep an eye on them. Uh, and if you're not sure about them, call them out. Yeah, really have a good little route around and where it all comes from. Thank you very much, Giles. Uh, Giles Beck for there. You can hear more from uh, uh, Giles and the business team on Morning Report every morning at 10.27. Let's go to the midweek money markets now. Here's what your New Zealand dollar will buy you. 64.72 US cents, 89.77 Australian cents, 60.49 euro cents, 51.38 British pence, 4.32 yuan, 85. 0.75 Japanese yen, 40.21 Russian rubles, 50.27 Bhutanese ingultrums. And uh, they're, they're in hot demand at the moment, let me tell you. Well, Boris Johnson may have won yesterday's confidence vote uh, amongst his own MPs, but you know his position as the United Kingdom's PM remains far from secure after things like this. It went down like this yesterday. 359 Tory MPs voted. 211 expressed confidence in Mr Johnson, which left 148 saying, nope, they did not. Joining me now to uh, have a look at the wash-up and all that is our correspondent, Henry Riley. Always good to hear your voice, Henry. Kia ora. Hello, Nathan. Kia ora. Okay, so there's that vote. Those are the numbers that everyone's got. What's the latest? Um, well, I mean, he is in increasing trouble by the day. There's sort of mixed reports after the vote yesterday. Um, that is a hell of a number of Conservative MPs who have voted against the Prime Minister last night. Of course, it's only 54 letters that are required to trigger a vote of no confidence, and there was not a guarantee that they'd get to 54 letters. We had that at the start of the week on Monday, and then you see over 100, uh, nearly 150 Conservative MPs voting against the Prime Minister. Now, it does show, perhaps, you know, it's very easy to vote against the Prime Minister in private as opposed to come out uh, against him in public. Boris Johnson's team, interestingly, taking the line that this now puts the whole issue to bed. This is now completely over. Nothing to see here. We've had Partygate. We've had this vote of no confidence. You've tried to get him out. That's failed. And so time to move on is what they're pushing in number 10. I'm thinking about, was that movie from the 80s, it's The Untouchables, where Al Capone's walking around talking about enthusiasms? Yeah. I just imagine that going on in the Conservative Party, that someone's walking around there, whether it's Rab or one of the others, going, oh, right, so let's talk about this. Those 148 that voted against, the, this party, the Conservative Party, how do they normally carry things out, Henry? Will this be something that continues to be leaked, or do they tend to be very good at closing those doors tight on people? 
There are some people who voted against the prime minister who we will never know their identity, to be honest, because they they sort of, you know, they, they've hidden away and they've had their vote in private and they're not going to come out in case Boris does make some sort of miraculous recovery and they may, might become a minister uh, and whatnot. What's interesting about the constituency of the 148 is that, is that they're not from any particular constituency. This isn't a sort of group of people who didn't like Brexit, who've always hated Boris. Actually, uh, from the letters of no confidence, at least the ones, the people that came out publicly, it was more people who supported Brexit than who supported Remain coming out and voting uh, against the prime minister. So they're from different wings of the Conservative Party. And the problem is now for the prime minister, what they'll be looking for in the next few days is you've got obviously the cabinet, which is the, the key 20 ministers uh, in the government. But beyond that, there is a huge number of conservatives who are in the government at various junior levels and there'll be a mass watch now as to whether there are any sort of ministerial resignations when you have a no confidence vote like this it normally means that your days are numbered particularly when it's this close it could be a case of months i think boris johnson the prime minister will obviously be hoping it's a lot longer than that but one clip that's doing the rounds today is jacob rees mogg who is now in boris johnson's cabinet when theresa may had over a hundred and uh, over 100 MPs voting against her. This was back in 2018. He said that shows that the prime minister can't carry on. It's, you know, shows that the party has lost faith in her. Boris has actually lost by a bigger margin than that. But Jacob Rees-Mogg's saying, oh, no, actually, th this shows the party do have faith in him. So there's a sort of muddled messaging at the moment when it comes to the Conservative Party and in particular, the governmental wing of it. I notice when he hand handles some sort of scandal or some of his other ones, someone will be interviewing him and he's very good at the, you know, the, the old rub on the head of the journalist and the old, oh, you know, that's not what we worry about. Look, 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 here's what we're doing. You know, and, and he and he very much tries to move stuff on quickly. However, I did see a clip of him where he didn't look quite as confident. So what what's the reaction been from the press, particularly those that you would normally say, well, you know, you, you might call the Tory press? Yes. And it, it does seem like there is a sort of growing tide of newspaper outlets and in particular prominent commentators that are coming out against him. It's also interesting. Boris Johnson did a clip last night after he lost that particular vote and he wasn't his usual sort of bombastic self. And when he tries to put on this sort of more serious, more somber look, he actually ends up looking far weaker, uh, I think, as a sort of political watcher. He looks far weaker than, you know, what he's vaguely quite good at, which is the whole uh, bumbling act. There's a sort of sense that, that the game is up uh, among certain people and that this is uh, only a matter of time now. Uh, in terms of what the Conservative Party does next, it's very difficult to see what happens. Usually you have to wait a year for another no-confidence vote. So that is what the government are clinging on to. You've had your vote now, you have to wait another year. But there are various people now coming out and saying, actually, we can change the rules. And it means that it doesn't need to be held every year. So there's a thought that we could have another, another no-confidence vote if they can successfully change the rules in perhaps a, a few months' time. So will he, I mean, he's, he's not going to be likely to say, actually, I've thought about things and it's, you know, best if I step down. No way, not at all. He he will cling on for as long as he can. He'll do exactly what he can. I mean, David Cameron's nickname for Boris Johnson was always the greasy piglet because he wiggles his way out of situations. <laughs> and that is the thought that the greasy piglet is going to escape one last time. <laughs> Henry, who, who though, who would be next? Let's just say if he did, who would be next? And, and would there be a group that might be going, come on, come on, you know? 
Um, there's, there's, there are MPs on manoeuvres. I mean, the most prominent among them is a man called Jeremy Hunt, who was the former health secretary, the former foreign secretary. He's He actually ran against Boris Johnson last time and made it in the final two. He came second in the leadership. And there's a thought that he's a sort of more moderate conservative, a bit more of a grown up. He was in the cabinet far longer than Boris Johnson uh, ever was. And there's a, a sense that he's perhaps in pole position. Aside from that, there are a few... Uh, sort of ambitious conservatives on the back benches. There's a man called Tobias Elwood who is actually positioning himself as a more pro-EU conservative, saying the UK should rejoin the EU single market. Tom Tugendhat, an army veteran, he is chair of the Influential Foreign Affairs Committee on the House of Commons. He's making uh, various musings, saying that he could uh, he could run. But looking at the papers today, it looks like the most likely successor will be Ben Wallace. And this is in some way aided by the UK's response to Ukraine. He's the UK Defence Secretary and is widely thought to have had a good uh, sort of conflict, as it were, in terms of the UK response and the missiles and the aid uh, that have been sent. So there's a thought that Ben Wallace, uh, the current defence secretary, could be in the running. And uh, Dominic Raab, who, of course, ran last time, he may well fancy his uh, his shot because he's been very loyal to Boris. But if Boris was to fall, he would hope on Boris supporters to fall in line and uh, and support him. Well, as you know, Henry, whenever they need a caretaker manager, Ari Redknapp, too, is uh, also one of the people that is <laughs> yeah. always on, on speed dial to run things. Thank you very much, sir. There is Henry Riley out of the UK. Between now and six o'clock, you're going to hear about the trials and tribulations of running a supermarket. Also, we'll hear from Sir Graham Henry, too, about the difficulties that All Blacks face once they've hung up their boots. And then what do they do with their lives? Uh, you're listening to First Up here on RNZ National with me, Nathan Raddadid. <laughs> The professionals of Morning Report this morning are in various studios around our nation's capital, uh, coming from the studio often visited, uh, visited by the foot warmer called Rainbow. It is Susie Ferguson. <laughs> Kia ora, Susie, how are you? Kia ora, I'm very well, thank you. Yeah. Yes, I'm at home at the moment. Um, Rainbow's still sleeping, and she's actually not allowed in here. Cause she oh, just, she's not? Oh, you don't do that one? causes a ruckus. Yeah, yeah, they she's always go, oh, some cables. This is always the time I like to pull cables, is when they do. Yeah, and, and chew them. And No, she's not allowed in here. <laughs> what's, what's going on? I mean, on she on? wants to be. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah you're true. She's a bit scratching. <laughs> what's going on on Morning Report today? Well, we're going to be talking about uh, the situation in Newlands, of course. A man shot multiple times by police yesterday afternoon. Unclear at this stage whether he had a weapon or not. Uh, but we will be, of course, bringing you the very latest on this from our reporter. Also, also talking to Newland School, which backs onto this area, uh, and of course the children who will be going to that school this morning, many of whom will have connections or indeed will have heard about what went on yesterday. So we will certainly hear from them. Also talking to Andrew Geddes this morning, um, a legal expert. This is as the Supreme Court is expected to quash the murder conviction of Alan Hall after 37 years. Quite an extraordinary case. Uh, so looking forward to talking to him about that. Also... Mm. Uh, COVID-19, the most vulnerable will soon be eligible for their second booster shot. Uh, so COVID's not quite gone away yet, I'm afraid, Nathan. It's all coming up after six. No, I nearly bought you a packet of Jammy Dodgers yesterday. Uh, but then oh, I had yeah. a lot, but it was, they're expired in May and I went, oof, no, oh, I'm not going to send that to you down there. But oh. I thought of you anyway. 
Thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. There we love go. Love a jammy dodger. Yep, yeah, love a jammy dodger. Uh, Susie Ferguson and Corin Dan up with you after six. Well, at a time when supermarkets are reporting huge profits, one new store owner says things are so tight for him that he's having to do everything from working the tills to cleaning the toilets. Chris Harris, not the cricketer, is the independent owner-operator of the Fresh Choice supermarket in the Auckland suburb of Epsom. But engineering issues, shoplifting and inflation have taken a toll with the family concerned about the store's future. Leonard Powell went shopping. It was pensioner Chris Harris's dream to run supermarkets, but the last seven years have been anything but. Since opening this fresh choice tucked away under the brand new apartments bordering Alexandra Park Raceway, he's fallen victim to prolific shoplifting and at the weekend would-be thieves took hammers to the entrance. Well the break-in was really frustrating. We've got lovely glass doors at the front of the supermarket which is what customers want, okay, because it means it's open, it's inviting and it's modern. They tried to smash the doors down with hammers. We're lucky that they're double laminated and they didn't collapse. But whilst the 70-year-old might sound upbeat, he's working 80-hour weeks just to keep his business afloat. Now, we're in a situation where we're not making any money in the store. We uh, have to therefore manage our labour very tightly and I fill the gaps. So I'm doing 80 hours or more a week. And look, I have a hell of a team here. They're really, really good. But I have to be there like I've just been cleaning the toilets. Then I went on to the flowers, been on the checkout. Look, I have to do those jobs, but there's nothing wrong with that. It keeps you in contact with your customers. Despite reports that some stores run by New Zealand's supermarket duopoly are making profits of $1 million a day, Mr Harris is struggling to break even, with competition from three countdown supermarkets and a pack-and-save in close proximity. It's been particularly tough. The local customers have got strong behaviours on where they currently shop. What we're in the business of doing is to show them an alternative, and to break those behaviours and to be able to get them to have a more, what we believe is a more pleasant shopping experience. Now that sounds all fine and good, but you've got to get the detail right, and that means you've got to get the produce right, you've got to get this right. So there's a lot of things that we've got to get right. Over the weekend, Chris's daughter Sarah Harris was so concerned about the store's future, she made an emotional plea on the local Green Lane community Facebook page, urging locals to support the family business. It's taken off, with hundreds of shares and comments and thousands of likes. I was completely oblivious to it. My wife, Juliet, who, by the way, works as many hours as I do, she alerted me to it. We had a look at it, and it was going nuts. And we, Look, I'm a bit of an old troglodyte, and I didn't really fully understand all the social media connections there. But it was really interesting to watch this thing. When first up visited, shoppers were streaming through the doors, buoyed by a $3 chocolate special. Asked about the high prices shoppers are facing currently, Mr Harris says he's also feeling the impact of inflation. The minimum wage, which was locked in at $15 or thereabouts, has gone up to $21.20. By the way, I'm fully supportive of that. People need to have enough money to live properly, okay, and they shouldn't be down there, you know, on a minimum wage that doesn't sustain them. What goes around comes around. So, yes, my wages have gone up and my prices have not gone up anything like that. So I've just had to manage better, cut my cloth finer, and there are some things, I guess, that get dropped off. But the point is, is that I've got a I've got a budget I've got to manage to. And of course, consumers will do the same. Leonard Powell. 
Leonard Powell with that report. Well, the men's health television programme Match Fit is returning to screens this month and it gives us a, a glimpse of what it's like for all blacks once they've hung up their boots and uh, rugby is no longer the centre of their lives. The former players are mentored by Sir Graham Henry and Sir Wayne Buckshelford as they face the physical and mental challenges that life throws at them in their later years. The second series features Vainga Tuingamala, who sadly died after filming had concluded. I caught up with Sir Graham Henry and I asked him what it's like working with players when they're no longer the trim professional athletes that they once were. Uh, they're normal human beings who uh, go through some adversity like everybody else. Yeah. And they've got to find some solutions to those adversities. And they've been very fit young men who have played international rugby as professionals. Yeah. But after all that's over, uh, they don't do the same training anymore and probably eat the same amount of food. And they don't have the same challenges. You know, those challenges, well, maybe not the same challenges. Those challenges as an international rugby player really got them on edge and maybe maybe in a major highlight of their life and things become a bit more mundane when they finish and they've got to find new things that are going to push their buttons. So they, they talk about those things, but I think the big thing is they work together to try and solve problems. Yeah, which is a nice thing. You know, the, the mental health too, the aspect of it, how much when you see these players that, you know, you used to coach and you knew them when they were in their physical prime and stuff, when you have a look at them now, how much of it is a bit where they go, it's almost like they've lost a bit of their identity and they're like, well, I used to be, you know, me, the rugby player, and now what am I? Do you find that some of them have bounced around a bit like a cork in the ocean that way? Oh, for sure. I think everybody who's gone through a, a major part of their life and had huge um, challenges and really enjoyed those challenges and that finishes and then they have to find a new interest, a new challenge often takes a while for that to, to occur mm. and uh, so that's a mental challenge and in these in these guys' cases it's a physical challenge as well because they're not going through the same training program as they did as professional rugby players but they still um eat the same amount of food so <laughs> they've got to make some cha- make some changes in their life and um so the series match fit series two uh, is about that yeah you know one of the uh players that was there and this, i'm getting quite emotional thinking about it inga tuingamala um who of course we we sadly lost this this season features him <sighs> Boy, looking back on that, on that now that you know you you got to work with them during the series and spend a lot of time um, around the guy, it's going to be so. It's going to be sad for me to watch. Have you managed to watch any of the footage back and seen him yet? And did it affect you? Oh, it starts. It starts very shortly, match fit too. But I've known Vainga Tuilamala for a long, long time. I'm just trying to think. 35, 40 years. He was a student at Kelston Boys High School where I was the headmaster. And so we go back a long way, and we're pretty tight, pretty close, and it was a huge tragedy. Mm. Uh, he was an inspiration to the other guys. He always had a big smile on his face, always involved in a bit of humour. And he, 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 he did remarkable things on the programme. He lost over 40 kilo. Wow. It was just a huge tragedy um, that he passed on, and our thoughts go out to his family, obviously, but... Um, no, a, a fantastic man who who was a major character in Match Fit, Match Fit Series 2. Um, and even today, you know, we all connect 
through an app and we still talk about him and how inspirational he was and mm. miss him dearly. Yeah. He, he was, I mean, you, you knew him very well. I only knew him just through work things. And I, I always, he was one of those guys that just made you feel like a million bucks whenever he was around you. So I'm sure that the others loved having him in in the series. And like you say, with, with that giant smile. Um, it, it's yourself and it's Buck Shelford who are the, uh, the, the two mentors uh, in the series as you move forward. Um, who were the guys that, was, was, did anyone surprise you where you thought, oh, they're actually in better shape than I thought they would be? Most of them had some challenges, but Brad Miko was a wee bit like Inger. You know, he, he was well overweight, weight, mm. had a, a knee problem, so he, he had trouble getting around. Mm. But he, he's been he's been also um, very dedicated to getting himself right. The big thing, though, uh, Nathan, is that these guys have continued, you know. They've continued to work hard. Mm. Um, it became part of their life. It became, now it's become habit. That they they do some exercise every day and watch their diet and and so on and so forth. So it's changed their lives, and I think it's changed their lives because they're supporting each other. Doing it in a doing it as a group of people rather than as an individual, I think, is inspiring. So each individual inspires the others, you know, yeah. by their actions. So Bradley, as I said, uh, Brad Mika uh, was very much like Inga, lost a lot of weight, but all the boys in their own way, have added to the program. Mm. And Match Fit won, won, the, won a, a best reality series for Television New Zealand, and I think Match Fit 2 might even surpass it. Yeah. Well, like I say, it was emo- like a lot of people were really emotionally moved by it, and it was funny. People going, oh, that, that really that really moved me. I, I wanted to move on to just very quickly something you're doing at the moment. You're involved uh, in the you know in the coaching team there and, and the Black Ferns, and I thought I remember Graham Henry uh, talking to him, I think it might have been the week after winning the 2011 World Cup, and he was super happy. He'd climbed the mountain, and he was into you know, fishing for kingfish off Waiheke and that stuff. And I thought, oh, he's so happy to be out of coaching. Why would you do this to yourself again? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, <laughs> I, I just feel so lucky, really. I, I, rugby's been great to me, gone through some fantastic experiences, and I'm just hoping that the the woman involved in the Black in the black Ferns go through some similar experiences. You know, it's, mm. it's a wonderful opportunity to play a World Cup at home. The last Rugby World Cup at home was obviously in 2011 when I was involved. Uh, It it galvanised the country. The country was so supportive. And I'm just hoping that um, the Women's Rugby World Cup, which starts in October, will do the same thing and and give these girls similar experiences that that team went through and I went through. So I feel grateful what rugby's given me and I'm hoping... It'll give the same pleasures to the girls involved in this team. Yeah, can't can't wait for it. Just just finally, what's it like? The difference uh, is it even comparable at all of coaching you know women in twenty twenty two when you look back to what it was like coaching guys back in twenty eleven? Is is it at all? You know, I mean, I guess the game is similar, but what what's it like in, in your approach and and how you have to manage things? Oh, it's quite it's quite uh, different. It's quite different. Girls ask a lot more questions than the boys do. <laughs> uh, so they're then it's great, you know. They're very, they're very keen to get it right. They're very keen to. They don't, they haven't had the same background in the game, the majority of them, as the men have. So they've started the game late, and uh, so they just want to know why we're doing these things and 
not only how but why and and that's great you know and um now i've really enjoyed the the contact and the association with the team that's Sue Graham Henry, season two of Match Fit premieres on three and three now tonight. It's got a moving series too. Have a look. Lots of feedback came in this morning. Morning to Nathan. Also in history today, 35 years ago, New Zealand became nuclear free. Uh, that's great. Thank you very much, Glenn, who's uh, loving the show. Shona from Oamaru says Boz is pseudonym of Charles Dickens. Uh, Steve in Wellington. Hi, RE Nathan in Albanese. Uh, Jacinda in Albanese. Back in high school in the 60s, a classmate said he was going to take a young woman out for dinner on a first date we said no I trust that both Jacinda and Albanese are old enough so can carry their first date over a private dinner to a better conversation okay Uh, Danielle's written a good one here too talking about Chris Harris and his um Supermarket. I really feel for Chris and his wife. I'd be happy to come and fill the shelves just to give this couple uh, a break. There are many individual owner operators who do it tough. I've shopped at the store. It's clear to me that the culture is good, that Mr. Harris cares about his team and his customers. There you are. Let's stop the shoplifting. It's not all covered by insurance. It's a myth. Thank you, uh, Danielle. Uh, look, you can get in touch with us anytime at First Up RNZ or our Facebook page, which is wonderful uh, because Tim Berners Lee wrote the internet. Uh, you can email us first up at rnz.co.nz. Morning Report standing by uh, to be uh, here with you, first up with you 24 7 on the podcast or back in your ears. Ah, oh, poor, poor.